Great. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Paul, for that reading. And uh, good morning to you. It is great to uh, be with you. Uh, we're going to be looking at that passage, so if you'd like to keep it open, that would be very helpful. And why don't I pray for us as we start, that uh, the Lord would speak to us. Let's pray, shall we? Matthew says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority. Lord, we recognize your authority this morning. We thank you uh, for that authority that you demonstrated on the cross and in your resurrection. And Lord, we want to be people who hear your words, and not only hear them, but do them. Help us, we pray, to see you more clearly love you more dearly, and follow you more nearly. For your sake we pray. Amen. Well, Alan and have just returned from the Keswick Convention, and it got me thinking. About 100 years ago, there were a couple of medical students who also went to the Keswick Convention. I guess they were like, probably like most students, really. They were um, fairly easygoing, fairly, uh, fairly happy, enjoyed playing sports, enjoyed hanging out with, with friends... Uh, both were from Christian homes, I guess, would probably have called themselves Christians if you'd pushed them, but it wasn't making a huge amount of difference in their lives. Anyway, they, they got dragged along by some friends to the Keswick Convention, and when they were there, they heard a talk that really hit them hard, and they realized that if Jesus was who he said he was, then he must be Lord of everything. Listen to, uh, to what one of them wrote afterwards, his powerful words. He said this, The Lord showed me that I was not my own, but I belonged to him, and I must listen to his voice and be ready to do whatever he commanded and to go wherever he might send me. Uh, the man who wrote those words uh, followed that up by going to Rwanda to be a missionary, and he and his friends, who he went with, uh, were among the pioneers of what was later the East African Revival, which many of you might have heard of, a profound movement of God. And in many ways, it all stemmed from them being able to hold their hands up and saying, Jesus, if you are Lord, you must be Lord of all. For them, it meant going to Rwanda. For us, it may mean things very, very different. But that is where we're going this morning. What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord? If we say that we are in the kingdom of God, if he is our king, then what does that mean for us? Our passage this morning is, I'm sure, very familiar to us. It is the conclusion of probably the most famous sermon ever preached. Uh, amongst others, Gandhi and Tolstoy have uh, held it up as being, uh, being a, uh, a, a, a paragon of, uh, of wisdom and wise words. And I wonder this week, as I've been preparing, how many people have actually read it all the way to the end? We often talk about the Sermon on the Mount being sort of, you know, it's all Jesus, meek and mild, isn't it, and being nice to people. And suddenly we get to this conclusion... And it's completely different. Jesus just hammers it home. He closes by confronting everyone with what it looks like to call him Lord and to come under his kingship. Because ultimately, the Sermon on the Mount rests on the place of Jesus in our lives and on those who hear it. Jesus uses three pictures in our reading uh, to, uh, to each express a different summons of what the kingdom of God uh, might mean. And we're just going to look at each one in turn and just bring out a few uh, thoughts and, uh, and see what it means for us. So anyway, without any further ado, the first one, the gate and the way. And I think this poses the question for us, where am I going? Look down with me, if you will, at um, verses 13 and 14. Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. 
but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus is uh, very clear. There's, there's a, a nice clear picture for us, isn't there? There are two gates. They lead to two ways. One gate is narrow and small. One leads to a narrow path. The other wide leads to a broad path. And immediately Jesus is suggesting that there are only two options available. We're all on one side or the other. There's no famous third way, as the Church of England likes to find and Tony Blair amongst others. Such a clear choice wouldn't be that surprising to Jesus' listeners. Most of them, of course, would be Jews. They would have been very familiar with the choice of the Old Testament, and doubtless some of you are as well. Think back to Deuteronomy, Leviticus or Joshua, that famous call at the end, isn't there? One way or the other, to choose life. You choose to follow God and obey him, or you choose to rebel and go away. Sadly, many of God's people over history tend to go that way, as is such the wants of humans. But the call is either one or the other, to follow, Jesus, follow God and hear his voice, or to wander away from it. Yet the radical thing is that Jesus claims here that to obey God's word and to know life is not simply to hear the Old Testament law, but it is to come through him. Do you see that? He talks, doesn't he? He says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. Jesus elsewhere spoke of being the door. He spoke elsewhere of of, uh, being the door to the sheepfold. I think there's no doubt that he is the gate that the picture is speaking of. He doesn't mean someone else. He is very clear that it's, it's him. I am the gate for here. No wonder he says that it's small. He doesn't say that in verse 14, doesn't he? Small is the gate. Because if he is the only way into the kingdom, there will be many people who will miss it. When I was at school, we had, um, there was a great big door um, which looked very, very impressive on the front of the school building. And it was always entertaining to watch visitors going up to it and uh, rattling the door to try and, uh, try and get into it. What they didn't know, and what you would know if you'd been at the school for any length of time, was the actual door to get in was around the corner, and it was somewhat less impressive. And I guess that sums up in lots of ways what many people view life, don't they? Lots of people are looking for very impressive ways to find true life, whether it's through their career, whether it's through a nice house, whether it's through having lots of things, or whatever it happens to be. Maybe it's through relationships. And they all are quite impressive on the surface, but they're not the real deal. Jesus says, I am the door, you go through me, that is the way to life. The other way will lead to destruction. This gate is also narrow, isn't it? Jesus says, verse 40, will narrow the road that leads to life. It's got a strict baggage allowance, if we want to put it like that. At the start of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has talked about the Beatitudes, hasn't he? He's laid down the standards of the kingdom. What does it mean? It means to be poor in spirit, to, to be humble, to be craving for righteousness, and mercy, holiness, and purity. In other words, to come into the kingdom of God means to leave all those things behind that many of us we hold most dear, and to embrace those things which are really, really hard aren't they? There's a strict baggage allowance to if we want to enter through the kingdom, it's a narrow way and it's really hard. Uh, The other week I went to a uh, meeting with Alan about uh, the trip to Israel and I was reminded when we saw a little picture of the uh, Church of the Nativity. I don't know if you've ever been there, I certainly haven't, but I've, I've heard of others who have. And the main way in is through what's called the Door of Humility. And it's, it's a very sort of low, it's a very low door basically, it's almost like a sort of just a, a gap in the stoneway. And in order to get into it, you have to sort of manoeuvre yourself in, get rid of all the luggage, and, uh, and push yourself in. And it's a wonderful illustration, isn't it, 
of what it means to enter the kingdom of God. If we're going to enter the kingdom of God through the Lord Jesus, we have to rid ourselves of all that spiritual baggage that we would love to bring with us. There's no way into the kingdom of God except admitting our need of the Lord Jesus and of his forgiveness. And what does it mean for us? Well, I think there are, there's many people here at Hay Trinity. Firstly, there is a very clear call to go in. For some of you this morning, the call will be very, very clear that you do need to go in this door. Jesus says elsewhere in St. John's Gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If we want to know life and not destruction, we must come to the one who offers it, the Lord Jesus Christ. For some, that's the step that you will need to take. And do speak to us afterwards if that's uh, something that you feel you need to do. But I guess for many of us, we will have gone through that door a long, long time ago. Perhaps we can think about that, that moment that we did it, and we know that. And we'll be in the kingdom of God. What does that mean for us? Can we just push this to one side and say, well, it doesn't really matter, it's for some other people here, and we're, we're kind of past that. No, I don't think we can. Surely for us, the question must be whether our lives reflect to the world the starkness and the importance of the choice that we claim to have made. Jesus says that there are two clear paths. He make, it makes it clear that it should be visible. It's not that they're, you know, they're blurry and one is, uh, one is on top of the other one. No, they are two clear paths. And I guess the question for us is how clear is it to others that we're on the narrow one? How clear is it that uh, our lives match up to the baggage standards, the baggage allowance of the kingdom of God? It's a difficult call, isn't it? For those of you who've been, been with us as we've been preaching through the, the series on the kingdom of God, it's a tough call, a really tough call. To, to be in the kingdom of God means that we lay down all that we hold most dear and rely on the Lord Jesus for his, uh, his work in our lives. It will be difficult. Of course we will fail. But our prayer is that surely that our lives would reflect the kingdom's qualities more and more and so be evident to other people. So that's the first uh, picture, the, uh, the gate and the way, and the question about where are we going? Where are we going? The second one is a different picture drawn from the natural world, and it's the picture of the tree and the fruit. And I think the question it gives for us this morning is, am I changing? Have a look at uh, verses 15 and following. Jesus says this, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruits you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. This is a a very common illustration, I guess, for Jesus' hearers. Lots of the ancients talked about this idea of of, uh, trees being judged by their fruit. And so having just outlined the, uh, the, uh, the call to come into the kingdom, Jesus starts to examine how do we know that we're actually in it? And the question is, simply, is there change? Initially, Jesus um, aims his uh, words at false prophets. You see that in verse 15. He says, watch out for false prophets. Um, Both the Old Testament and the New Testament, I'm sure you'll know, repeatedly talk about the need to be on the watch for false prophets. Um, Whether we think of Jeremiah's conflict with the prophets, he said there was peace when there there was no peace. Or Paul's Paul's, uh, writings to uh, to Timothy and Titus, we're always told to be on the lookout for false prophets. Uh, in the Greek here, it really means liar prophets. That's what it means, literally. They are they're people who tell lies. They spread uh, things that are misleading. And surely it's no surprise that Jesus puts it after, having, told, having just outlined the way into the kingdom. 
He says, because actually false prophets so often get that bit wrong. They deliberately mislead us as to how we get in. They are ferocious wolves, deeply dangerous. They look genuine on the outside, in sheep's clothing. They look like a genuine article, but inwardly, they're ferocious wolves. But the danger doesn't just lie with false prophets, but it's also with false disciples. Do you see that as we further down our uh, reading from verse 21? Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I don't know about you, but I... I always read these words, and there's a chill that goes down my spine. I I think these are some of the most frightening words in the whole of Scripture, certainly in the New Testament. Because Jesus is saying it's possible to both claim to confess him as Lord, and yet still to be outside the kingdom of God. How, How does that work? Well, the dividing line, I think, is in verse 23. Did you notice what uh, Jesus says? He says, And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. That little word, knew. Uh, in, in the Bible, uh, to know is not simply just to have somebody as a Facebook friend or, or to sort of vaguely say hello to them in the street. It it's, conveys a sense of deep relationship. In the Old Testament, it's frequently used as an idiom for, um, for, for sexual intercourse, that, that deepest, the most profound relationship that human beings can know. But it's also used to speak of that relationship between God and his people. Isn't that a wonderful uh, aside, isn't it, on, on the, the nature of, of sex? It's an incredibly deep word. It implies a really fundamental, deep relationship of immense intimacy. And the false disciples here are saying that they do many things for Jesus. They, they, they've done all these things. They can list all these amazing things that they've done, and yet they have never truly met the one they claim to work for. Isn't that shocking? Because they never knew him. Such a question surely begs, how do we know? How do we know? That must be our response. How do we know that we are the genuine deal? When I, uh, before I went into ministry, I uh, worked for a while in a department store. And one of the big things that plagued us was the fact that you'd get lots of people trying to launder money. They would give you fake, uh, fake notes. And that's pretty fatal if you're in a business. And you have to be able to tell the, the real from the true. I won't tell you how they did it, because it would take too long. But it's quite entertaining. And... If it's important for House of Fraser to know what is a true banknote and what's a false, surely it's important for us to know whether we're in the kingdom and whether we're not. Anyway, Jesus gives us a test. The answer is in verses 18 to 20. He says it is by the fruits of our lives. Genuine faith will always produce genuine fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, he says, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Um, Jesus said elsewhere, didn't he, in, uh, in John 15, I'm sure you know, he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And the answer is that when we're in a living relationship with the Lord Jesus, when we're in the kingdom, the work of his spirit will always bring forth consistent and attractive spiritual fruit. We'll start loving the Lord Jesus more and more. We'll start having a hunger to listen to his words, to worship him, to gather together with Christians, to pray We'll start to have a hatred for sin, for those things that used to be so important in our lives. There will be genuine change. The question for us must therefore be, am I changing? Can I see the fruits of the Spirit at working in me? Because if we're following Jesus wholeheartedly by his Spirit, then we will see those changes in our lives. It it follows, doesn't it? 
Sometimes it might be slow to, to spot or maybe a little bit hard, but we will see that. If we're the genuine article, it will come out. Uh, previous Christians in, uh, in, in generations long ago were, were very fond of what they used to call um, the discipline of self-examination. I guess we would call it probably a spiritual MOT. Uh, we took our car to the, to the garage not too long ago for its uh, annual MOT. And I guess for many Christians, it's a wonderful discipline to do a spiritual MOT. I wonder when you last uh, had one. Perhaps if you're uh, bored on the beach uh, this, uh, this summer, maybe it's a time to consider just stopping and thinking about how the Lord has been at uh, work in your life. Maybe it's just asking a few simple questions. How am I doing? Am I loving him more than this time last year? Am I wanting to serve him more than this time last year? You know the sort of questions. Read the scriptures. Just ask the questions that Jesus has asked. It's a wonderful uh, stimulus for encouragement because actually we can see how God has answered our prayers and has been at work in us. But it may also be a bit of a rebuke as well. And if things are getting a little bit lukewarm, if we're not uh, on fire as we should do, maybe that provides us with a focus as we come back for the autumn. What if there does seem to be little? What if we do these tests, we probe, and there doesn't seem to be an awful lot there? Well, surely the answer is for the Lord Jesus to come back to the true vine. Jesus described himself in John 15 as the true vine, and he said when you're connected to the vine, he promises that you will bear fruit. He says that he is the, the great gardener. He will, uh, he will prune us that we may bear more fruit, that we show ourselves to be his disciples. And that's surely the answer, isn't it? If we want to bear fruit, we must be in a living, vital relationship with him. That is the test of whether we're in the kingdom or not. That's the summons, the second summons from our passage of the tree and the fruit. It is, is there change? Am I changing? Am I being fruitful? Anyway, the final uh, picture that Jesus sets up is, of course, the very familiar one, the wise and the foolish builders. And the question is, am I obeying, from verse uh, 24. Um, on uh, Wednesday, I had the uh, privilege of leading the playgroup leavers service, and we sang the, the famous song, The Wise Man Built His House on the Rocks. So I'm not going to get you to do that this morning. But it's a, a, a wise and familiar um, passage, isn't it? It would have been very familiar to uh, the world of Jesus' listeners in uh, Palestine. In Palestine, it's absolutely vital for you to plan your buildings very, very carefully. Um, a site that in the dry weather, uh, dry season, could, could seem pleasant and sheltered and sandy and a, a lovely place to build your house, could suddenly in the winter, become a, uh, under a flash flood, become a raging torrent that destroyed everything in its path. Uh, and if you hadn't planned it ahead, you could end up in a bit of a mess. And the rotten foundations could uh, end up ruining the whole thing. Like the previous pictures, Jesus sets up a contrast, doesn't he? He's very clear. He says that there's the, the, uh, the wise man who built his house on the rock, and the wind came, and the storms rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house. It didn't fall. And then he talks about the foolish man who built his house in the sand. The rain came, the streams rose, and the winds blew against that. On the surface, there doesn't seem to be an awful lot that's very different, does there? They're both men. They both build a house, presumably in a... You know, similar style, similar sort of, uh, sort of fashion. And yet it's only when the storms occur that the differences become apparent. You see that in verses 25 and 27. For the wise man, the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house. And it didn't fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But then for the foolish man, the rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. One building on the solid ground endures, the other one collapses. And it's clear for Jesus that, that what is true in the world of construction is also true in the realm of the spirit and the realm of the kingdom, isn't it? 
On the surface, he seems to be saying that both believers, because I think he is talking here, it's very clear about um, believers and people who profess to be in the kingdom. He says that both these people appear to have heard his words and they seem to be building Christian lives or what looks like Christian lives, the same. And yet when disaster strikes, one survives and the other one flounders. What's the key difference? Well, it is surely in uh, verse 26. Jesus says, one heard... And both heard, and yet only one obeyed. Do you see that verse 26? He says, But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. One belie- both believers heard. They both heard the, 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 uh, the words of Jesus, and yet only one of them put it into practice. The final summons of the kingdom for us is a summons indeed to obey. I guess for each of the three challenges that Jesus presented with us, this is probably the one that hits hardest at Holy Trinity, isn't it? I reckon. Let me say why. I guess for many of us, we will be Christians of a very, very long time standing. Um, We will be very familiar with Jesus' words. I am sure you have heard many sermons on this passage that are probably far better than I could ever manage, and you've heard them many, many, many times. Certainly I've heard plenty of sermons on them. We will have heard, um, we we will know the scriptures inside out, won't we? We will be very, very faithful Christians. And yet, I guess already, inwardly, many of us are probably mentally excusing ourselves from the demands of this passage. That is often my experience, if I'm honest, when I'm listening to Jesus' words being explained in a sermon. I sit there and I think, well, that doesn't really apply to me, so um, I don't really like that, if I'm honest. So I'll try and water that one down. Oh, that doesn't really apply to me. It probably applies to him over there, actually but not to me. It's striking a chord, isn't it? I know we're, we're often like that, aren't we? And we can, on the surface, be listening to Jesus' words very, very faithfully. We can know them very, very well. We could tell people all about what Jesus had said and what the words of the Scriptures say. And yet, the big issue is not hearing, but doing. John Stott is particularly helpful and very challenging here. This is what he writes in his commentary, and it's worth quoting. The question here is not whether we say nice, polite, orthodox, enthusiastic things to do or or about Jesus, nor is it whether we hear his words, listening, studying, pondering and memorising until our minds are stuffed with his teaching, but whether we do what we say and do what we know. In other words, whether the lordship of Jesus which we profess is one of our life's major realities. That's a it's, it's, it's tough words, isn't it? Don't mishear me. Jesus is not saying that the way into the kingdom is by work. Some people have taken from this that that is what he's saying. He isn't saying that. The first picture is very, very clear. He is the door. The only way into the kingdom is through faith in him and his work on the cross and in the resurrection. That is very, very clear. He's not saying we can earn our salvation. We can't. Nor is he saying that listening to his word is unimportant. He makes that very clear. He just says he expects it, doesn't he? He doesn't say, oh, some of you might hear and some of you don't. He's expecting that if we are in the kingdom, then we hear his words. The issue is one of obedience. Rather, he is saying that if we truly hear the gospel and believe it, we'll also obey it. We will simply do what it says. Something that's reaffirmed repeatedly through the New Testament, isn't it? Think of the Epistle of James. It's constantly about the danger of simply saying something but not actually doing it. Saying that we're Christians but not really living living it out. Don't you know that faith without works is dead? 
as St. James says. Think about um, John, uh, first, first letter of John, constantly talking about the dangers of a, a verbal profession, saying that we, we say something but actually deceiving ourselves. And they're challenging words, aren't they? They are hitting hard. I've certainly been wrestling with them this week in my study. But it is so easy to slip into a superficial faith that just pays lip service to Jesus' words and yet doesn't actually do them. And such a situation is both dishonouring to the Lord Jesus Christ and it lulls us, in fact, into a false sense of security because when difficulties will come, we will find out then the true worth of what we've built on. If we haven't built on the Lord Jesus and his words, we're not doing what he says, we will find that the whole thing is likely to collapse. Some years ago, there was a uh, debate in the Times about a, uh, a, a Royal Navy sailor who had been punished rather harshly over an issue of disobedience. And in the letters page, things were flying to and fro from retired admirals and so on and so forth. And eventually, one uh, sa- uh, retired sailor piped up and offered his, uh, his uh, thoughts. And he told a story about when he was at sea and a cable snapped and suddenly threw itself across the deck where there was a gathering of, um, of sailors. And the officer in charge ordered them suddenly to duck, get down. And they all threw themselves down. And he said, if I hadn't learnt the value of obedience, unquestioning obedience, I wouldn't be here. And if that is the case for that sailor, so it surely is the case for us. To obey Jesus is to know life and not destruction. Let's make sure that we're building on the right thing. Are we obeying? That is the final summons of the kingdom. Let's come into land, shall we? At the end of uh, our passage, verses 28 and 29, Matthew records how the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one having authority and not as the teachers of the law. Such authority for Jesus' hearers demanded their attention and their decision. And ultimately, our response to the summons of the kingdom, as we said at the start, rests on the person of the Lord Jesus. Who do we think he is? And if he really is the Lord, if he is the king, and we are in his kingdom, then he deserves our wholehearted submission. Firstly, we need to come into the kingdom through him. He is the the gate that offers that in bearing good fruit, in showing ourselves that we are his disciples, that we are part of the kingdom. We are bearing good fruit and bearing kingdom values. And finally, in obeying and building on his word, in obeying the summons of the kingdom. What will it look like for you this morning to obey the summons of the kingdom? I guess there's three, uh, three things there. Perhaps it is the call to come in. For some of you, that will be very real. Come into the kingdom. That is, God's, that is the Lord Jesus' call to you. Come in to the kingdom. You need to be in. Perhaps for others, it is to show more clearly that we're part of that kingdom. Maybe we've been Christians for many, many years, but are we showing ourselves to be part of the kingdom? Are we bearing good fruit, the good fruit that lasts? Perhaps it is simply that call to obey. Maybe you're conscious that you know a lot about the Lord Jesus, and yet, as St. Paul said, knowledge puffs up. The danger is that we know so much, but we don't do it. And that is Jesus' call here. Do not be somebody who hears, but does not obey. It would have been very easy for our two medical students at the start, that I referenced at the start, to have um, simply heard a sermon, heard Jesus' words, or read them in their Bible, and yet to uh, have not uh, committed themselves to Jesus. And yet, look what the Lord did through them. What can God do with us if we respond to his call? Let's uh, pray, shall we, as we close. Lord Jesus, we recognise that these are hard words. We know that so often we are people who hear, and yet we simply don't obey. Lord, we know that we are in our heart of hearts sinners who hate your word. 
and yet we long to be those who love it, and more than love it, do it. Lord, help us, we pray, by your Spirit. Uh, Strengthen us as we come to share bread and wine together. May this week and forevermore we be those who are doers of the word, and not merely hearers. For your Son's sake we pray. Amen.